I invite you to please turn in your copy of God's Word to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24 as we continue our life-changing look at Jesus. As you turn there, let me remind you that Matthew chapter 24 contains a private conversation between Jesus and his 12 disciples. They're sitting on the Mount of Olives, just east of Jerusalem, looking down on the great Temple Mount. <clears throat> and they're talking about the destruction of that temple, Jerusalem, the end times, and the second coming of Jesus. Now, you ought to know by now that this conversation, it happens on the heels of Jesus walking out of the temple for the last time. As he walked out, he told his disciples that that great, incredible structure, the temple, it would be destroyed and not one stone would be left on top of the other, which would have been an absolutely shocking statement for Jesus to make. That's because that temple was so immaculate, so huge, and it taken so long to build. How big was it? Well, a few months back, I think I told you that it was bigger than twice the size of Shields. Come to find out that was a gross understatement. Did a little more research. I'm a dork. I like to look at maps. And uh, I was looking at my maps and I was doing measurements and this, that, and the other. Let me tell you how big this structure was. I'm going to keep using Shields because it seems like everybody knows what Shields is. Well, if you take Shields and you take all of the parking lot around Shields, both in front of it and beside it, behind it, and then you move north just a bit to the movie theater and all the stores that are on either side of the movie theater and you take the parking lot that's behind that and in front of that. And then you move across the street, so to speak, heading towards Shiloh, and you go over by Taco Bell. Not that any of us ever eat at Taco Bell, but there's Taco Bell there and a dentist office, and a little bit south of there, there's some more buildings. I believe there's a bank, and there's Dave's Hot Chicken. Pretty good if you haven't eaten there yet. And what else is there? There's the hamburger joint, and now there's Chipotle, and you can even change your tires while you wait at Chipotle at the tire shop. Well, if you take all those stores and all those parking lots and you build one gigantic temple to the one true God with stones as large as almost 40 feet long by 12 feet wide, and you stack them on top of each other, white marble stones, in fact, and then you cover those with gold and fill that with a million people and countless sacrifices, well, then you'll begin to understand just how big and enormous the temple was and why it was so shocking that Jesus said not one stone would be left on top of the other. Jesus, do you know how much work it took to get one of those stones in place? So naturally, as the disciples walk away, they have some questions, but rather than ask those questions in front of all the people, I mean, this would have been shocking and perhaps would have caused an even greater uproar than what was happening there at the temple that day. Instead, they wait till they get on the side of the mountain, there's some privacy, and they ask Jesus three questions. One, Jesus, when is this gonna happen? Two, when or how will we know that you're coming back? And three, when will this age, this present age, come to an end? And as we began to discover two weeks ago, Jesus answers their questions with a rather lengthy response. 
And that's what takes up Matthew chapter 24 and Matthew chapter 25. Among the scholarly realm, we call this the Olivet Discourse. I want you to know the more time that I immerse myself into Jesus' answer here, the more that I am convinced that he gives his disciples and he gives us a straightforward answer. A straightforward answer that carries major, life-altering implication, not only for his original disciples, but for all who would follow after him in these final days of this present age. Now, we started looking at this answer two weeks ago, and then I was sick last Sunday. Thank you for your prayers. But because I was sick, we were not able to return to this text last Sunday, and I was pretty disheartened by that because we'd laid a lot of groundwork. There's a lot of confusion surrounding Matthew 24 and end times in general. And because I want you to be clear on what Jesus teaches here and what the epistles later in the New Testament teaches there, I've decided to slow down just a bit to make sure that we're all on the same page moving forward. Therefore, I'm going to take the time to do a decent amount of review this morning to make sure we are on the same page. And then we're going to advance the sermon just a bit. Next Sunday, Lord willing, when we reconvene, we're going to really focus in on how what we're learning should have major life-changing implication, implications, I should say, on us today. The title of this morning's message is The Simplicity of the End Times. The Simplicity of the End Times. The Bible's teaching on the end times, it can be, it can be rather simple and easy to understand. And Lord willing, you will see that from Jesus' teaching on this text, and if we have time, also from First and Second Thessalonians. Admittedly so, revelation can be a bit confusing. But it becomes a little less confusing once we understand the clearer passages in the New Testament. And Matthew 24 is one of the clearer passages. 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 Thessalonians 5, 2 Thessalonians 1 and 2. Those are clearer passages dealing with the end times. And when we have a better understanding of those passages, well, those less clear passages tend to make a little more sense. By the way, I want to let you know for prayer purposes, and I'm not making any commitments today, but I am seriously giving consideration into taking our church through the book of Revelation once our life-changing look at Jesus is completed. Revelation is one of the most neglected yet applicable books to those alive today, and we just might tackle it here in the near future. But getting back to today's message, point number one is this. The end times and the destruction of the temple. The end times and the destruction of the temple. This is also a review of last week's message. In verses 4 through 14, I'm not going to take the time to reread them for you, but that's where Jesus starts by descri describing what characterizes the times before the end. There will be false Christ. People will be led astray. There'll be wars and rumors of wars, conflict between nations, famines, earthquakes, tribulation. Powerful people will hate Christians. They will even put Christians to death. Many professing believers will fall away. Following Jesus will prove to be too difficult. They, rather than placing their faith in the 
one true gospel and surrendering their lives to the Lord Jesus Christ, instead believe an easy gospel, do not surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ, and when the times get tough, they flee. They do not endure to the end. False prophets, Jesus says, will abound. False gospels will arise. This will lead many people astray. The love of many will grow cold. But the Christian who endures to the end, that is unto death or unto the time that Jesus returns, he or she is the one who will be saved. That's a summary of verses 4 through 13. Meanwhile, while all that is happening, Jesus tells us in verse 14 that the gospel will go forth and will be preached among the nations that is throughout the world as a testimony to all the nations. And then, Jesus says, then the end will come. The end of what? The end of this age. Remember, Jesus asked, what would be the sign of the end of this age back in verse 3? I want to remind you from two weeks ago that the Bible presents us with a fairly simplistic overview of time. In the Bible, when we, when we boil it down to its most base nuts and bolts, you have this present age, this present age that started way back in the book of Genesis and continues through the present. This age will come to an end and then begins the age to come. It is the day of the Lord that is the second coming of Christ, also known in the Greek New Testament as the parousia, that is what separates this present age from the age to come. That's the simple timeline of the Bible. This present age, the second coming of Christ, the age to come. Now, to be sure, theologians have broken down this present age into various smaller segments and epochs and, dare I say, dispensations. You can call them dispensations without being considered a dispensationalist. And surely God has dealt people with people differently according to the dispensation, the time, the epoch that they were in. For example, God dealt differently with Adam and Eve before the fall than after the fall. Surely God dealt with people differently after the Abrahamic covenant. That's when he called out a nation for himself, revealed himself to them, gave them the ordinances, the word of God, the law. Just as God has surely dealt differently, especially among the Gentiles once Christ came and the mystery of Christ was revealed to all the nations. So, yes, we have, we have, we have segmented, we have broken down this present age, but do not lose sight of the fact that it all falls within the present age. Now, what Jesus is talking about here in Matthew 24 is the end of the present age. Peter calls this period, I'm sorry, Timothy, let's get this right. Paul calls this time period the last days. 1 Peter chapter 1 Timothy chapter 3 verse 1 Let's move on to Peter. Peter 
calls this time frame the last times, 1 Peter 1.20. The apostle John calls this last period the last hour, 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. Now, all of these phrases, they work synonymously with one another, all describing the period at the end of the present age. When is this time period? The last hour, the last times, the last days. Well, a cursory reading of the New Testament will reveal to you that it is the time between Jesus' ascension into heaven and his return to earth. In other words, it's everything from Acts chapter 2 through today ending at the second coming of Christ. Those are the last days, the last hours the last times, which means we live in the last days. That's where every, that's, I should say, that's why everything that Jesus describes for us in verses 4 through 14 has been happening. It's been happening since Acts chapter 2. And they will continue to happen perhaps even more and more until Jesus returns. Brothers and sisters, we live in the last days. Now, in verses 15 through 21, Jesus moves on to address the disciples' first question about the destruction of the temple, Jerusalem. Verse 15, he says, So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, what is that all about? Why would Matthew, why would Jesus say, let the, the reader understand? Well, because according to the Jews living while Matthew was writing, the abomination of desolation had already happened. It had happened in 167 B.C. When Antiochus Epiphanes went into the temple, the Jewish temple, he built an altar to Zeus and he sacrificed pigs on it. Well, what Jesus is saying is that's going to have another fulfillment. Let the reader understand. It's happened once and it'll happen again. Verse 16. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. Why? Because the wrath and devastation is going to be great. That's why he says in verse 19. And alas, woe, those poor women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath, for then there will be great tribulation. Such has not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. Jesus speaks of a time of great tribulation that happens during the end times. As we talked about two weeks ago, all of the events that Jesus speaks of in verses 15 through 21 took place at the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in AD 70. That is very important for us to know. Why? Because Jesus guaranteed his guys in verse 34 that all of the things that he's been describing, including verses 15 to 21, 
would happen before the disciples' generation died. We didn't talk about this two weeks ago, so look at verse 34. He said, truly I say to you, this generation, what generation? The one he's talking to, the disciples' generation. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away, will not die until all these things take place. What things is he talking about there in verse 34? All the signs. Beginning in verse 4, all the way through verse 26. Before the disciples' generation would pass away, Jesus promised they would see false messiahs and people being led astray. They'd hear of wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes and famines. They'd experience hate and persecution for Jesus' name's sake. They'd see the gospel of the kingdom start to go forth throughout the whole world. And, and they would see the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. Jesus says, truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. I tend to think that Jesus wasn't wrong. Nor do I think that he was trying to confuse anyone. You see, the disciples, they saw all these things come to pass in their lifetime. And we continue to see all of these things happen in our lifetime. And we can even look upon the total destruction of the temple. Jesus was right. Well, Jeff, you speak of a great tribulation that happened in the past. Will there be a great tribulation in the future? I think so. Many believe, myself included, that there are actually many times of great regional tribulation throughout, spanning throughout the last days. And many of us believe that there will be one final time of great global tribulation leading up to the second coming of Christ. Now, part of the reason why I think that is verse 22. Before we jump into verse 22, let me say this. In verses 22 through 28, this is important that you hear this. Jesus circles back. He circles back to describe additional characteristics of the time leading up to his second coming. And he starts with another startling statement. He says, and if those days had not been cut short. What days? Well, remember, let's do big picture, this present age. He's been talking about the last hour, the last times of this present age. Now he's nearing the end. If those days had not been cut short, well then, no human being would be saved. Meaning that the end of the last days will become so turbulent, so evil, so severe, that if God does not intervene and cut them short, no human being would make it through. Like Sodom and Gomorrah that we just read about this week in Abide, all would be wiped out. 
Jesus says, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Jesus then goes on to say in verses 23 through 26 that people will look to other saviors and messiahs, but there is only one true savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And when that one true savior returns to end this present age, it will be unmistakable. Look at verse 27. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man. It will be unmistakable. And so now Jesus transitions to a new topic, the second coming, which is our second point, the second coming of Christ. Point number one, if it sounded familiar, good. If you weren't here two weeks ago, you're caught up. We've covered the end times. We've covered the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. And now Jesus, he progresses to talk about his second coming. The day of the Lord, the parousia. Look at verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days. What days? The last days. The days between the first and second coming of Christ. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Does that mean what it says? That the literal sun and moon will grow dark and the literal stars of heaven will fall. Probably. Everything Jesus has said up to this point in Matthew 24 has been literal. So I don't think he switches to a metaphor or an allegory here. He seems to be saying these things will literally take place. But I should say, some scholars do think that he is speaking metaphorically here. They take the stars and the sun and the moon to refer to governments or earthly kingdoms. Governments and earthly kingdoms will fall from greatness and lose their powers. That's an option when it comes to interpreting this passage. Honestly, it wouldn't surprise me if both are correct. It's not hard to imagine that if the great lights of the heavens are shaken and the stars fall out of the sky, that kingdoms and governments here on earth will crash and burn at the same time. Especially when you consider how much stuff, how much equipment powerful governments have put into orbit in space and how heavily dependent we are on that equipment. This morning, as your fa- or this morning, this afternoon, not now, you're not allowed to sleep now, I'm talking about naps, okay? No sleeping now. This afternoon, before your nap, Google, how dependent are we on satellites? You will find out that we, and as individuals, and we, as major governments, are very dependent on what's out there circling our globe. As a matter of fact, all major forms of communication are dependent upon satellites. If satellites fall, so does modern society. Jesus just might have known what he was talking about after all. Verse 30. Then, 
after the stars fall and the great lights are darkened, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. What's the sign? We don't know. I'll be honest, there's been different interpretations throughout the ages saying different things. What is, seems to be apparent to me is that this is an unmistakable sign that announces to the whole world that Jesus is returning. It's not a secret sign. It's a bold, triumphant sign for all to see. How do we know that everybody sees it? Let's keep reading in verse 30. And then, after the sign appears, then all the tribes of the earth, that's everybody, folks, all the tribes of the earth will mourn. What? Why do they mourn? Because they've seen the sign and they know that their defeat is certain. They've, they've refused to surrender to King Jesus. They've refused to believe his gospel. And now they know it is too late. You see, they foolishly have tried to build their own godless kingdoms of this world and kill and destroy and persecute God's people and his kingdom. And now the person of Jesus Christ is returning to planet Earth to crush them. Judgment Day has arrived. And they will mourn like people who see a merciless, murderous army ascending upon their homes. All the tribes of Earth shall mourn at the sign of his coming. Verse 30, meanwhile, they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. What we have here is Jesus describing for us the second coming and the rapture. Jesus is attaching the rapture to his second coming. Jesus will collect all those who are his and we will meet him in the air. We read about this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 and 17. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so we will always be with the Lord. What a day that will be. No believer, whether they lived during the time of the Old Testament, the time of the New Testament, or after the New Testament, will be left out of this event. God's angels will collect all of us, all of God's elect, from one end of heaven to the other, and they will take us to meet our king in the air who is returning triumphantly. Jeff. Did you miss something? I thought we met Jesus in the air at the rapture seven years before the day of the Lord, the second coming. I keep reading this chapter over and over and I never get to that part. For my rather simple thinking, and I am a simple-minded man, 
I cannot find the rapture anywhere in scripture happening before a great and final tribulation. It seems that it occurs when Jesus comes to end this age and begin the next. And this is very consistent with what Paul teaches the church in Thessalonica when they had questions and were confused about the second coming. Now, I'm going to take you to 1 Thessalonians in just a minute, but first, before we go there, I need to give you a little more information from Matthew 24. I wish I had two hours to preach this sermon. You don't, I do. Because we'd keep going in Matthew 24. We don't have time. We're going to come back to it next week. But what we are going to do is I'm going to give you a glimpse of what's to come. Because it's very important. And you will see that what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 24 is very much what Paul is talking about to the Thessalonian church in First and Second Thessalonians. So let me read a little bit more from you out of Matthew 24. Skip ahead to verse 36. Concerning the day, that day, and hour. What day and hour? The day Jesus comes back. The second coming. The parousia, the parousia. Concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming, the parousia, of the Son of of man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the parousia, the second coming of the son of man. What's he saying? He's saying life's just going to be normal. Like back before the flood came and judged and wiped everybody out. People are going to be eating and drinking and marrying and being given to marriage. Then the son of man will come. He goes on, verse 40. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will take, one will be taken, and one left. Therefore, stay awake. Hey, why would we need to stay awake if we're already raptured? Stay awake, therefore, he says, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would have not have left his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready. Who's he talking to? Disciples. Therefore, you must also be ready for the Son of Man is coming Perusia at an hour you do not expect. Now, I'm not going to explain all that. We're going to explain it next week. So come back. It has major ramifications. But now you know enough to flip to 1 Thessalonians 4. Go to 1 Thessalonians 4. Be encouraged by these words. This is incredible. Just by way of reminder, Paul's writing because people have upset the Thessalonian church about saying the day of the Lord, the second coming, had already happened. He's writing to clear that up. Verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, meaning those who have died, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope for since we believe that Jesus died 
and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Let's hit the pause button for a minute. The moment we die, remember, death is not finality. Death is separation, always in the scriptures. The moment we die, it does not mean that you cease to exist. It means that your soul separates from your body. Your soul, the part that makes you you that no one can x-ray. The immaterial part of you that is eternal. It separates from your body. And if you are a Christian, it is immediately in the presence of the Lord. But your soul does not have a body. It's a disembodied spirit. Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians 15. This is an earthly tent. In the moment that we die, this body that's been corrupted by sin, it goes back into the ground and becomes dust, but our eternal soul as believers goes to be in the presence of the Lord. That's why it says here that those who have fallen asleep, God will bring back with him. He brings back our brothers and sisters in spirit forms, in soul form, so to speak. This will be relevant in a moment. Verse 15, for this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, that means we still have our bodies, that we who are alive, who are left until what? The parousia, the second coming, the coming of the Lord. We who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep, who are dead. For the Lord himself will descend. Listen to how close this language resembles Jesus' language in Matthew 24. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Meaning, those disembodied spirits are reunited with a body. The dead in Christ will rise first. They'll be given their new resurrected body. So that's the first thing that happens. They're given their new body and they raise from the dead. Then what happens? Verse 17. Then we who are alive, who still have our bodies... Who are left will be caught up together with them, meaning it will be the greatest family reunion of all time. Jesus will give us back our dead loved ones. We will go together with them to meet him in the air. What a day that will be. And so, he says, we will always be with the Lord. That is our hope. Verse 18, therefore encourage one another with these words. Yeah, they're a little encouraging, wouldn't you say? Let's keep reading. Verse, chapter 5, verse 1. Now, concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. Why not? Because Jesus has already told us about this. Nobody knows the day and the hour. Verse 2. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord. He's talking about the day of the Lord. The rapture, the parousia, the second coming. He's talking about all of it. That the day of the Lord, when will it come? It will come like a thief in the night. Nobody will know. Just like Jesus said in Matthew 24. Verse 3, while people are saying there is peace and security, like Jesus said, like in the days of Noah, when everybody's eating and drinking and marrying, when everybody thinks everything is okay, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they, and they will not escape. But you are not in the darkness, brothers, for that day, the day of the Lord, to surprise you like a thief. Then Paul goes on and he tells him, 
that this truth should change the way you live. That's what we're going to talk about next week. Flip over to 2 Thessalonians. What I want you to note is Paul does not separate these events by a seven-year tribulation. He speaks of them as if they're one and of the same. Second Thessalonians, he's writing the same people, okay? Verse 3, chapter 1. He says, we, that's Paul and his ministry team, we ought always to give thanks to God for you brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Why is that important? This is so important you get this. Matthew 24. Jesus said there's going to be false messiahs, false gospels. People are going to abandon the faith. And when things get tough, they're going to run. And their love for each other is going to grow cold. Paul's saying the exact opposite has happened at this church. Your love's actually increasing. Verse 4. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions. What did Jesus promise would happen? persecutions during the last days and in the afflictions that you're enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also, you are also suffering. Suffering's huge in this context. Verse six, since indeed God considers it just to repay with afflictions those who afflict you. What happens on the day that Jesus returns? There's a sign and the whole earth what? Mourns. Why do they mourn? Because they know that it is just for God to afflict the people who afflict his children. Verse seven, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well to us. Question for you. When does this relief from affliction and suffering and persecution happen? Look back at verse 7. And to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. It comes at the second coming of Christ. Verse 8. When he comes from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might. When he comes on that day, the day that ends this present age and begins the age to come. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. Church, why do I belabor? Why do I take extra time? Why am I going to get in trouble from the children's ministry because I went too long? Because you live in the last days and you should expect affliction and persecution not for being a jerk but for loving like Jesus and spreading the gospel of his grace throughout the world he has given us a commission I should back up Noah, let's go back to Noah. Jesus talked about Noah. Everybody during the days of Noah, they just acted like everything was okay. That this world was all we had to live for. Meanwhile, what was Noah doing? He was preaching, the end is near. God's wrath is coming. Repent. Noah preached why he built that ark. And God has commissioned us to preach, to go, therefore, into all the nations. We're to go and take the gospel of the kingdom around the entire world, teaching people to obey 
everything that King Jesus has commanded, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Why? Because God's kingdom is advancing around this globe. That's what we do. Meanwhile, we trust in the ark, not the one that Noah built, the ark of Christ. For it is only in Christ that we will be able to endure the certain wrath of God that is coming. As we trust in and rest in and feed in the ark of Christ, we look forward to the day of his appearing. That's the end times made simple. There's two ages, this age, the age to come. We live at the end of this present age. Jesus is coming back and he prepares us to suffer well until he does. Church, this is one of the reasons why Jesus is better than everything in every way. He gets us ready. He gets us ready. So, as we understand this easy, simple timeline of the end times, we need to make sure that it affects us accordingly. And that's what Jesus is going to talk about for the rest of this all of it discourse, the end of Matthew 24 and all of 25. And that's where we're gonna pick it up next Sunday, Lord willing, if he waits that long to come back. Let's pray. Oh God, thank you for the hope of Jesus Christ. Even as we think about your return resurrected bodies being united with loved ones and meeting Jesus in the air, spending all of eternity with him. Lord, our hearts are just full of joy, but yet they're also full of some fear and trepidation, knowing that these days are hard, that they are full of affliction and suffering. Lord, that we would be among the number whose love grows, that remain steadfast, whose faith grows rather than those who fall away. Oh, Lord, help us to love your appearing and long for it, to be ready for it. Amen.